Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, November 5th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. We don't know who's going to be president come January 20th, but we do know that COVID-19 isn't going away anytime soon. Stats Helen Branswell joins us to discuss what the winter has in store for the ongoing pandemic. Next, we'll discuss the latest twist in Biogen's quest to win FDA approval for a polarizing treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And finally, stat reporter Casey Ross joins us to talk about the recent death and legacy of Bertrand Might, a 12-year-old boy born with a rare genetic disease. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the Chief Revenue Officer of STAT. The coronavirus pandemic has prompted the healthcare community to find new ways to help. The COVID-19 Plasma Alliance includes 13 companies developing a medicine made from plasma that may become an important COVID-19 treatment. I'm here with Julie Kim from Takeda, who co-leads the alliance. Julie, you're co-leading a global initiative to deliver a potential medicine in the fight against the pandemic. How can we each play our part? Hi, Angus. Thanks for the question. The Alliance is developing a medicine called a hyperimmune that's made with convalescent plasma from people who survived COVID-19 because their plasma contains special antibodies that can fight off the disease. The more COVID-19 survivors who donate, the more medicine we can make. So if you've survived COVID-19, please consider donating. Your plasma could help others survive COVID-19 too. And if you've not had COVID-19, but know others who have, please help us spread the word. You can visit thefightisinus.org to find out more. We are recording this podcast at around 10 a.m. Eastern on Thursday morning following the U.S. election. And as of right now, the results of the presidential race are still uncertain. That may have changed by the time you listen to this, however. But no matter who wins, uh, one thing is certain. Donald Trump is president at least until January 20th, 2021. We head into the colder months at a grim milestone. The U.S. this week recorded more than 100,000 cases of COVID-19 in a single day for the first time. Hospitalizations are rising and deaths are too. And the administration that's been leading the national coronavirus response will be leading it at least until January 20th. So what does winter bring? Stat senior infectious disease writer Helen Brandwell joins us now to help us prepare. Helen, thanks for being here. Hi, nice to be here. So, Helen, we're more than eight months into the pandemic in the U.S., and it's really hard to imagine it getting worse. But that's what health experts are warning about. So how bad are you hearing it could become and what does that look like? People have been warning for months. In fact, I wrote a story in August talking about the fact that winter was coming and the country really wasn't on the right track to go into a winter in a safe place. Numbers in, in the U.S. never got down to the lows that were seen in Europe and other places. So as more COVID started to spread, we rapidly got to you know, the very high numbers that we're seeing now. By sometime early next week, the country will likely cross the 10 million infections threshold. Uh, the more COVID there, sp- there is spreading, the more cases there will be. Uh, 100,000 cases a day seemed unthinkable at a point and now could be a norm for a while. It's, it's really hard to know. Uh, but what is clear is that this is going to be a very difficult winter. The more cases the more there are, the more pressure that puts on healthcare systems, um, the more pressure that puts on the economy. 
uh, the more difficult it is to get other kinds of health care, like cancer screening or cancer therapy or any kind of health care that people need. So it's going to be a difficult time. So Helen, you wrote recently about the World Health Organization warning countries not to give up on efforts to contain COVID-19, which seemed perhaps to be a response to comments from White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who told CNN that, quote, we are not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation areas, end quote. So how do you think the rest of the world sees the United States right now? As a cautionary tale, probably, you know, Certainly, there would have been parts of Europe which would have been feeling a little bit smug in this late spring and summer as they managed to get their outbreaks under control. But um, people got lax there and cases are soaring in Europe. You know, the numbers are climbing quickly and high in many countries. And so it, it you know, both Europe and the United States are, are graphic evidence of what happens if you don't try to keep this under control. It's not easy. It's extremely difficult. And the population here and everywhere, frankly, is very tired of it. You know, if everyone could, they'd roll back the clock to 2019, but that isn't an option. And so the best case scenario is getting your numbers down low enough that the spread of infection is manageable, but we're not there now. You've also been writing about our perhaps overly optimistic expectations on timelines for when we'll all be vaccinated. What's happening with the race for a vaccine? It it is proceeding at an extraordinary pace. I mean, it really, you know, five or 10 years ago, if anybody had said that you could get to the point where you might have usable vaccines within a calendar year, people would have maybe wondered what you were spiking your coffee with. It's it's remarkable, but it still takes time. And there are probably still going to be bumps in the road. You know, yesterday, AstraZeneca announced that it wasn't going to be able to produce quite as much vaccine in the time frame that it had promised. Um, and that's not a surprise at all. I expect that we'll probably see more such announcements. Developing and producing vaccine at huge scale really is a difficult undertaking at the best of times. Um, You know, it's very common, even with established vaccines, that manufacturers run into production problems and vaccines that we need, you know, for routine use sometimes go into short supply because of things like that. So there's no reason to think that kind of issue wouldn't arise with COVID-19 vaccines, especially given the incredible scale people are hoping to make these vaccines too. So with the understanding that the the national leadership is the same, at least until January 20th, how much can state leadership make a difference here if the national approach continues as it has into the winter? Well, a lot of what has happened in the U.S. has been based on state leadership. And as you know, we've all seen, there's been kind of a fractured situation with a very much red state, blue state kind of approach to things like requiring masks and and, uh, putting limitations on hours of operation for businesses or or things like, you know, indoor dining. States are going to have, they're really going to have their challenges ahead of them. Uh, You know, it it would seem clear the White House is not going to take, (laughs) uh, turn over a new page on this. In fact, they're likely to continue to ignore or downplay the situation. So a lot of... um, 
the pressure to respond to this will be at the state level. We're also just a few weeks away from Thanksgiving and holidays, at least during this pandemic, have been major catalysts for the spread of COVID-19 in this country. You talked with health experts about how to approach family gatherings this year. What did they tell you? Well, I was actually surprised when I did that. When I wrote that story, I was anticipating that most of them would say, don't do it. Uh, And I found few actually who were willing to go that far. Um, Even Dr. Tony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, didn't want to be the person who said, don't get together with your family, although he is not getting together with his daughters this year. The more people you're in contact with, the higher your risk of contracting and spreading COVID-19, especially when some family members are maybe more diligent about masking and limiting contact and, and and social distancing than others. Uh, they, you know, The people I spoke to certainly suggested that if people are going to get together with family, think about trying to get together with family when you can drive to them as opposed, as opposed to having to fly to them. Think about you know, the rules of the state that you might be traveling to in terms of whether it requires uh, quarantine before you come. And also keep the gathering small. And speaking of Tony Fauci, you know, he has found himself at increasing odds with President Trump over the coronavirus response uh, on the campaign trail. The president recently suggested that after the election, he might fire Dr. Fauci, you know, who's been in his role since 1984. Now, obviously, we're handicapped here by not knowing the outcome of the presidential election. But do you think that that might happen, Helen? Well, we do know that that Donald Trump is going to be president until January 20th, regardless of the outcome of the election. And we do know that he has been extremely frustrated with uh, Dr. Fauci and I think feels that Dr. Fauci is part of the deep state within the bureaucracy that he constantly rails about. So do I think he would make a move to try to fire Dr. Fauci? Yes, I would think it's quite possible that between now and January 20th, something might happen. Um, Dr. Fauci is not a political appointee and he cannot be fired at the whim of the president, but the president could order HHS Secretary Alex Azar, I think, to fire Dr. Fauci, or he could order um, Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, who is Fauci's boss, to fire Dr. Fauci, and um, then we would get into a situation where we'd see whether either of those two men would carry through on the order. Um, even if they, you know, attempt to fire him, there there are protections in place for career bureaucrats, and there would it, you can't just fire; you have to fire for cause, and so there would likely be hearings. They would have to sort of come up with some uh, reason to fire him. But I wouldn't be terribly surprised if there is some effort made to to do this between now and January 20th. And certainly, if the president is reelected in the period afterwards, he's recently signed an executive order that would give the government more power to get rid of career bureaucrats. So, you know, if the president is reelected, and even if he isn't, I think Dr. Fauci may have a bit of a rocky time ahead. Helen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Between the seemingly endless election and the alarmingly prolonged pandemic, it's easy to lose sight of what was once the biggest biotech story of 2020, Biogen's quest to win FDA approval of a polarizing treatment for Alzheimer's disease. That drug, called aducanumab, has for years been the subject of debate among neurologists, many of whom vehemently disagree over whether it has proved to actually provide a benefit to patients. But the most important opinion, of course, is that of the FDA. And this week, we got some surprising evidence that the agency's scientists are leaning toward approving the drug. Yeah, in hundreds of pages of documents made public this week, FDA staff appeared to endorse Biogen's case for aducanumab, calling the data, quote, robust and exceptionally persuasive, end quote. They also seem to accept Biogen's argument that despite negative results of one large clinical trial, the sum of the data suggests the drug is beneficial. Now, these documents came as a shock to investors, and Biogen's share price rose as much as 45% as a result. So, guys, why was everyone so caught off guard by this? I think there are two reasons, basically. One of them is that, you know, as we mentioned, the clinical data supporting aducanumab are a bit of a mess. I think everyone would agree. And you know, with one negative trial and one ostensibly positive trial, there was the perception that, you know, the FDA might look at this and demand a third trial to confirm it. And then separate from that, in, in sort of FDA lore, people are used to these sorts of documents, these briefing documents from FDA staff, leaning kind of negative. FDA staff tend to poke and prod at data, and, you know, a quick read of them would suggest that they're going to reject an eventual drug, and people kind of grade this on a curve. So when the aducanumab documents came out and seemed so positive, I think it was doubly shocking, considering the data and then considering what we know about how the FDA tends to view these things. And to put these FDA documents in context, their release is part of the regular process of reviewing a drug. So the next step in that process is a meeting of independent experts who will vote on whether to recommend the FDA approve aducanumab. And we're recording this on Thursday, that meeting scheduled for Friday. How might the positive tone of the FDA documents influence that vote? So I think, you know, like Damien said earlier, and I think one of the biggest surprises here was kind of the, you know, was really sort of the collaborative nature of these briefing documents and how positive they were. And I think that will likely influence the outcome of this advisory panel that's being held on Friday. Because, you know, instead of taking this adversarial, adversarial tone and sort of highlighting critical elements of data, you know, the FDA seems very much wanting to approve aducanumab. And so while I expect that there will be a lot of debate at the at the advisory panel, and there are going to be certain panel members who are going to raise problems and issues, and, and I'm sure that there will be some people on the panel who will maybe vote to, uh, you know, vote against recommending aducanumab. It just seems like the whole tone and the shift here is kind of leaning towards approval. I think we can't overstate how big of a moment this really is for people in the Alzheimer's community. You know, yesterday after the the news, just on these briefing documents, I had somebody reach out to me asking, tell me all about this drug. Would this be right for my dad who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's six years ago? And you know, there's just nothing out there for people with Alzheimer's right now. The problem is having to, you know, explain that the data are so mixed on this drug. Um, and the people 
um, who were included in the trials were early on in the course of Alzheimer's disease. Um, We're going to have to see what what the panel says and then, of course, what the FDA says. And then, of course, there's another gatekeeper, the payers, the insurance community, um, which will decide who should get the drug and and who they'll reimburse the drug for. It's just going to be really interesting to watch, but a continual reminder, I think, of the heartbreaking nature of Alzheimer's disease that, yes, this could be the first drug that was approved to slow the course of the disease. It's not a cure, though. It's really not going to be a savior for the millions of people living with Alzheimer's right now. Yeah, I think the patient aspect is what makes the aducanumab saga so fascinating because both sides of the debate as to whether this drug has proved its worth make a compelling case on behalf of patients, which is that, you know, Meg, as you mentioned, there is there are no disease-modifying therapies out there and millions of people who could conceivably benefit from aducanumab, which is an argument for approving it despite the incomplete nature of the evidence. On the other side, you know, people who are against approving it could make a very compelling case citing the exact same patients saying, how catastrophic would it be if we, in the name of expediency, approve a drug that it turns out later does not actually help these people? And now they've spent money and time and endured the side effects of the treatment for no benefit whatsoever. And I mean, that's very much, that's been the conversation it feels like for the past five years, and it's only gotten louder and more pertinent as we move toward the final FDA decision date. You know, and another wrinkle here, Damien, is, you know, when we were reading the briefing documents that were posted by the FDA yesterday, you know, there is one uh, biostatistician within the agency who, you know, was pretty negative on the aducanumab data and and seem to side with the critics who believe that uh, another clinical trial is warranted here, uh, you know, that the drug should not be approved based on the data that were submitted. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not, you know, that criticism is aired on Friday during the panel and whether it's persuasive enough to convince some of the experts who will be voting here to, you know, to to recommend against approval or whether, you know, kind of the overall positive tone that the FDA has on the drug kind of wins out. And of course, whichever way the panel votes, the FDA can choose whether to go with their vote or not. Um, And the FDA is set to decide by March 7th. spend a few minutes to remember a 12-year-old boy who died too soon, but whose life led to some crucial medical discoveries and hope for dozens of other children with his rare condition. Yeah, we're speaking of Bertrand Might. His family called him Buddy. Uh, Bertrand was the first person in the world to be diagnosed with a particular neurodegenerative condition that causes developmental delays, seizure-like activity in the brain, and frequent infections. One of those infections led to his death on October 23rd. Back in 2019, stat reporter Casey Ross and this podcast producer, Hyacinth Empanado, spent time with Bertrand and his family to tell the story of how his father, Matt Might, used his expertise as a computer programmer and artificial intelligence expert to unravel the medical mystery affecting his son and to help find treatments to help him. Matt's work led to the creation of an AI-based computer system that can sift through reams of genetic data to tailor treatments for other patients with rare and hard-to-treat diseases, like it did for Bertrand. Casey joins us now to discuss the inspirational and hopeful legacy of Bertrand Might. Casey, thanks for being here. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, Casey, as we said, you got to know Bertrand and his family while reporting your story last year. So tell us about Bertrand and the rare genetic disease that he was born with. Yeah, Bertrand was born with what we now know is a disease called Engly-1 deficiency, 
which uh, causes a constellation of symptoms, developmental delays, mobility challenges, uh, declines in liver function, and, and frequent infections. So it's a very uh, difficult disease uh, to deal with for a young boy. Uh, you know, despite that, uh, Bertrand managed to be uh, a pretty positive uh, and pure-minded um, kid, and, uh, and that endeared him to, to everyone he met. So when Bertrand first started showing those symptoms, his doctors had no name or explanation for this illness and then naturally no treatments to offer for it, which is what inspired Matt, his father, to begin using a combination of genetic sequencing and AI to find ways to help his son. What came out of that effort? Yeah, so this was very mysterious. I mean, the mites noticed from very early on that he had um, these, uh, he was having seizures in his brain and he was having, um, he just didn't move like a normal child would. And so they went through quite an odyssey to try to figure out what was wrong with him. And ultimately it was using uh, genetic sequencing uh, where they finally began to zero in on a specific gene. This is where they found um, that he had a double mutation in NGLI1. Um, and that explained uh, the symptoms that he was having and, and finally provided a diagnosis that they'd been seeking uh, that happened when Bertrand was four years old. And so how was the AI program used to find treatments for Bertrand? Matt was an expert computer programmer who worked in a different field. And um, when his son became sick, he began applying his expertise to, um, uh, to health and medical information and genetics. And uh, he was able to use an AI system that he developed to begin examining, you know, dozens of different databases of molecules uh, and um, uh, drug information uh, to be able to zero in on uh, treatments that could help his son. And, and ultimately, he was able uh, to do that. And even in certain circumstances, he was helped. He was able to help doctors uh, diagnose infections that Bertrand would get along the way uh, in order to make sure that he got the treatments, the antibiotics in certain cases that he needed to recover. So today, Matt Might runs the Hugh Call Precision Medicine Institute at the University of Alabama, in Birmingham. Can you tell us about the work that Matt and his team do there? Yeah, so they, they pretty much uh, try to apply precision medicine um, uh, to patients with rare or hard-to-treat diseases that come to the Institute because they can't get any answers from conventional medicine. Either they can't get uh, a, a proper diagnosis or they just can't figure out treatments. And so Matt and his team um, you know, apply kind of an algorithm that Matt learned from Bertrand to try to decode the illnesses that people have by looking at their um, genetic information, figuring out the gene that is involved in their disease. Um, is that gene overreactive, underreactive? Is it toxic? Is it missing? And once they figure that information out, um, then they can big, begin to figure out uh, how to modulate that uh, gene, how to uh, try to treat whatever the underlying disease is. And, and they've been able to help dozens of people in that way. So, Casey, you interviewed Matt on stage at our healthcare summit last November. You know, and during that interview, uh, he talked about the importance of building community around a disease that you know no one had ever heard of before. So, let let let's listen to a clip from that conversation. I remember right after we got this diagnosis, it was at Duke University with the researchers there, sitting in that room, being told that you're the only patient in the world, um, and we have no prognosis, and this is clearly not actionable there's nothing we can do for you. And, and again, I thought, well, certainly we can do science, but in tandem with science, you can do community. 
You know, it was clear that there were other patients out there. They were just undiagnosed. This is a brand new disease. They, they didn't know what they had. Um, so it is ultra rare, but I estimated there's probably 500 some patients out there that, that have it. And I, yeah, I, I told the researchers there, I said, I'm going to write a blog post and I'm going to see if I can find more patients. And so that's what I did. I actually, I wrote a blog post that was really designed to go out there, go viral, and then rank highly in Google search results. And sure enough, it did actually start to find other patients. Um, in fact, it was two weeks. There was a sibling pair in Turkey that had the exact same disease. They just, again, they didn't know what they had, but were then genetically confirmed to have the exact same thing. And so this community started to form. Uh, and now I guess it's seven years post-discovery of the disease. We have about 70 patients worldwide that are in contact with each other, working together, participating in natural history studies, participating in clinical trials, um, and, and you know, really working to understand, treat, and cure this disease. The key thing to remember here is that before Bertrand was diagnosed, uh, there were dozens of kids uh, in families whose children suffered from this disease that they had no name for. They had no information about it. They just knew that their child was sick and they didn't know how to help them. Um, and the odyssey that Bertrand went on along with his father and his mother to figure this out ended up helping all of those children because they finally had a name for their disease. Uh, and they finally had a community of people that could then be studied and that could then advocate for one another, advocate for science and advocate for uh, cures. And, uh, and that science is much more advanced and all of those people now have, a, have hope uh, because of Bertrand's life and the discoveries that it led to. And you've also spoken to Bertrand's parents since he died. So how are they doing and what did they tell you about Bertrand? They're doing, I think, as well as anybody could under the circumstances. Um, they're heartbroken, um, obviously, but they're also you know, very um, hopeful about and and uh, grateful for Bertrand's life and what it was able to accomplish. And so, you know, they're focusing on uh, his legacy, uh, also the fact they've begun an, an endowment at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, to, to fund uh, care, advanced diagnostics, and treatment for people with rare diseases like their sons. So I think they're, they're really focused on making sure that uh, his life has meaning and, and will for so many other people as it has already. Casey, thanks for sharing Bertrand's story with us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, or your thoughts on the coming pandemic winter. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.